Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Health provider Kaiser Permanente has mountains of health data on millions of Californians. And Kaiser is now using that info to help figure out who's at higher risk of getting COVID-19 and should get vaccinations first. KQED's Polly Stryker has more. Most healthcare providers use certain data to look at health equity, like education, earnings, unemployment, how many people live in a home. Healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente is now cross-referencing data like that with its vast electronic medical record system to see who's at highest risk of exposure to COVID and complications if they get sick. This is a really important piece to targeting where do we go after with the vaccine. That's Dr. Stephen Perotti, Associate Executive Director with Kaiser. As with the general population, Kaiser's Latino, Black, and Asian patients have higher levels of coronavirus infection than white patients. Parodi says Kaiser can pinpoint who are the most vulnerable people within those populations and prioritize them for vaccination. People like the elderly HIV patients he treats in Vallejo. Many of them, actually, their biggest problem is not HIV. They have high blood pressure, they have diabetes, all the typical old person type stuff. Uh, that you might see. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist at UCSF, applauds this health equity work, but he says people will still fall through the cracks. The people who are not in Kaiser, the uninsured, the agricultural workers, the undocumented. Chin Hong says when it comes to health equity, there's a lot more work to do. For the California Report, I'm Polly Stryker. As we've suffered through this pandemic, we've turned to California's public health officials to help keep us safe. But many of those officials have also been targets, threatened by people who don't like wearing masks or think the pandemic is a hoax. A panel of top doctors expressed their concerns about the threats facing public health professionals yesterday. KQD's Laura Clivens has more. Harassment of you or your family. Protests at your home. Backlash against public health protections and a lack of support from state or local elected officials. These are the common themes public health workers are reporting having faced this past year. And experts say women and minorities are targeted to a greater extent. Santa Clara County Health Officer Dr. Sarah Cody is familiar with the challenge. I'm still experiencing rather regular harassment. I've actually had a 24-7 protective detail for almost a year because of concerns about my safety and the safety of my family. Experts suggest creating a harassment monitoring system, using existing laws to protect public health workers or creating new ones, and supporting investment in public health infrastructure. For the California Report, I'm Laura Clivens. 
The L.A. City Council voted 14 to 1 yesterday to approve a hazard pay ordinance requiring workers at supermarkets and drugstores to be paid an extra $5 an hour. It's the latest in a series of so-called hero pay pandemic raises being considered and passed across California. In L.A., KCRW's Matt Gillum explains. The move by the city council came a day after the County Board of Supervisors gave the green light to hero pay in unincorporated parts of L.A. County. While the county's measure goes into effect Friday, L.A. city leaders will take a final vote on theirs March 3rd. Along with supermarket and drugstore employees, workers at retailers like Target and Walmart would also get a raise because many big-box stores dedicate a portion of their sales floor to groceries and medical remedies. The extra wages would last for four months, according to the measure. The California Grocers Association has filed federal lawsuits claiming the measures are unconstitutional. Not long after Long Beach passed the first local hero pay ordinance, the parent company of Ralph's announced it was closing two stores in the city in response. For the California Report, I'm Matt Gillum. Turning to education, this week, officials with the San Diego Unified School District, the second largest school system in the state, unveiled a plan to reopen schools for classroom instruction starting in April. Parents generally praised the plan, but a significant number also criticized the district for waiting too long. KPBS reporter Joe Hong has more. San Diego Unified officials plan to reopen its campuses on April 12th so that students of all grades could be on campus at least part-time. But that's only if COVID infection rates continue to decline and teachers working on campus are vaccinated. Olivia Moffitt is a parent who spoke at Tuesday night's meeting. She emphasized the urgency of reopening. Each day is a day my seven-year-old is battling me through tears as I beg him to sit for three hours of Zoom. We will persevere to April 12th, but please recognize that any delay will be a struggle for so many families. Most of the parents who spoke at Tuesday night school board meeting supported the plan for prioritizing public health and safety, but a number of others said schools should have reopened months ago. Teachers and staff will become eligible for the vaccine starting Saturday. For the California Report, I'm Joe Hong in San Diego. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. 
Southern California's Inland Empire, that's Riverside and San Bernardino counties, has been transformed in recent years by the growth of the warehouse and logistics industry. The warehouses, owned by companies like Amazon, are enormous, millions of square feet in size. And cities in the region, arguing that the warehouses create jobs, are pushing for even more facilities to be built, despite environmental concerns. Orlando Mayorquin is a journalism student at Cal State Northridge and a reporter for Cal Matters. He's been covering the story in the Inland Empire where he grew up. Over the last 10 years especially, there's been a lot of warehouse development thanks to e-commerce, um, and especially in the communities east of the 15 freeway. So before those communities uh, like Bloomington, Rialto, Fontana, there are sort of pockets where there is some more open land, you know, it was more of an open place. But in the last 10 years, a lot of that space has been occupied by warehouses and the landscape has, has really changed. And in more recent years, a lot of those projects are being built closer and closer to residential communities, many of which are low income. And that sort of is where the story takes place in the community of Bloomington, where a few different warehouse projects have now popped up in the last few years. Now, I assume the warehouse and logistics industry has created opportunities. I mean, it's created jobs, it's created investment. That's on the good side of the ledger. What's not so great about this industry, particularly if you live in Riverside and San Bernardino counties? I was in high school about five or six years ago uh, when I learned in my environmental studies class that the Inland Empire actually has some of the worst pollution in the country, basically because you know, a lot of diesel trucks come in into the warehouses in the area. And also the area is boxed in by mountains to the east. And it kind of acts as like a catcher's mitt for all of the pollutants blowing in by wind uh, from L.A. So pollution is definitely a big one. And then there's also a question about, you know, the kind of quality of the jobs that are being created. A lot of the jobs are sort of fulfilled through temp agencies and, and they're lower wage and they don't exactly offer the best benefits. So you're arguing that even the kind of the economic arguments for this industry may not be so great once you look under the surface a little bit. Right, right. And, you know, a lot of the local officials here definitely laud the job creation and the economic aspects of this. The Inland Empire has a big population that's largely blue collar that has uh, relatively lower levels of education attainment. So the kind of jobs that the folks here can get are sort of more laborious jobs like warehouse work. But there are still concerns among other elected officials about, you know, the pollution and all of that. But ultimately, when it comes to sort of voting to approve or deny these projects, the vote is typically to approve. And finally, I know some residents have, have fought the growth of the warehouses. I know some environmental groups have fought the growth of the warehouses. Looking ahead, do you see this kind of the, the willy-nilly growth of the warehouse industry being more controlled in the future? There has been sort of a growing consciousness about these projects. For example, uh, Senator Connie Leva, who's the state senator for the area, just last week introduced a bill that I think it would prohibit the construction of any projects that has any sort of negative environmental impact near low-income communities. All this to say is that I think there's definitely a huge push to sort of adapt and make these warehouses as clean as possible for the future and cut emissions, but I don't think we should expect to see these things outright halted anytime soon. All right. That is Orlando Mayorquin, a student journalist with Cal Matters. Orlando, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 
Now to news of a new lawsuit filed by a trust for survivors of wildfire started by Pacific Gas and Electric Equipment. That trust, set up in the company's most recent bankruptcy, is suing almost two dozen former executives and board members of PG&E. The California Report's Lily Jamali has been following this closely and joins us now with more. Good morning, Lily. So what's the focus of this lawsuit? Well, Saul, the lawsuit targets these former executives and directors at PG&E, saying they breached their fiduciary duties to the company. Put simply, the claim is that they didn't do their jobs. And it claims that breach of responsibility is what resulted in the deadly and catastrophic fires sparked by PG&E's equipment in 2017 and 2018. Here's attorney Frank Petrie, who is lodging this suit on behalf of the trust. Thus far... PG&E has been a faceless villain, but this is a lawsuit that seeks to pull back the curtain and to identify those decision makers who established policies and procedures that failed. Specifically, he says PG&E executives and directors should have pushed to de-energize power lines when fire danger was high so their equipment didn't spark fires, and he says they should have invested in maintenance of PG&E's system, parts of which are now a century old. And Lily, let's talk about specific people. Who are some of the PG&E executives targeted in the suit? Yes, this list of almost two dozen names includes two former CEOs, Anthony Early and Geisha Williams. Williams was CEO when the company's equipment sparked the 2018 campfire, which destroyed the town of Paradise. She stepped down just as the company was filing for bankruptcy as those wildfire liabilities mounted. Chief Financial Officer Jason Wells, who recently departed PG&E, is also named, as is the former chairman of the board, Richard Kelly, who left a few months into the company's most recent bankruptcy. And I understand tomorrow is an especially important day for wildfire survivors. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. All of PG&E's 80,000 fire victims have until tomorrow to submit final paperwork to the trust to get paid. This is a huge project, and the trust, which is filing the lawsuit we were just talking about, they are preparing to start paying people as well. The problem is that half of their money is locked up in PG&E stock right now. It might surprise a lot of listeners to know that fire victims in the form of this trust own 24% of PG&E stock. They have to sell that to get cash for victims, and it is an unusual setup, even by bankruptcy standards. I had a pretty lively exchange with that same attorney, Frank Petrie, who helped broker this setup for fire victims, and I asked him if he had any regrets agreeing to take stock, which has not performed well. Here's what he told me. I am optimistic that the shares of stock will be marketed so that Fire victims get fully compensated. Saul, that is simply not in line with what I'm hearing from fire survivors that I speak with. A deal that was marketed to them as being worth $13.5 billion is a billion dollars short of that target. By and large, fire survivors I'm speaking with don't share in the optimism that they will get fully paid, but time will tell. Well, such an important story to so many wildfire survivors here in California. That's the California Report's Lily Jamali. Lily, thanks so much. Thanks, all. And that is the California Report for this Thursday, February 25th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. And the weather looks terrific in a lot of California today. So get out there and have a great day.
Support for the California Report comes from Water Heaters Only, specializing in the repair and replacement of water heaters since 1968. Licensed and insured, open 24 hours a day every day. Learn more at waterheatersonly.com. California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care, on the web at chcf.org voices. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 